Are you ready for good talk? Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto. It's a Good Talk Friday. Chantel Hebert is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Um, you know, back-to-back majority governments, they don't come often. Back-to-back majority governments where the second is an increase on the first, they come even less often. But hey, that's what happened in Ontario last night. Doug Ford comes crashing home with a second majority government and a big one. And I know in many parts of the country they're saying, so what? Who cares? It's Ontario. Well, we're going to try and take from last night's voting results and try and figure out, you know, what lessons can we take from what happened in Ontario? What lessons can politicians take from what happened in Ontario? Remember, this was a guy who a year ago, two years ago, looked like there was no way he could win re-election. Things had gone sour in Ontario, the handling of COVID, all that was not good. But somehow, Doug Ford, and if, if you can imagine this, was doing backflips last night because he managed to turn everything around. So what are the lessons of the Doug Ford victory? Chantel, why don't you start us? I'm still trying to get my head around the Doug Ford doing backflips <laughs> image. It's early in the day. I'm sure he will too. Will be trying to see how that would have worked out. Yeah. Um, and I can't do a backflip for the record. Um, I don't think number of things. <laughs> a lot of people saw that election as the first test of the electorate's mood towards incumbent in a time when inflation is becoming a major issue. I don't buy that. I don't believe that uh, the inflation issue has coalesced into a ballot box issue yet. That may happen, probably will happen. Uh, but at this point, uh, the, the negative feelings that could come from it towards incumbent gets mixed up in the post-COVID relief for the many who feel that we live a better life than we did a year ago, but also the job numbers, uh, which point to a fairly vibrant job market. So so I, if there are incumbents uh, elsewhere in the country looking at this thinking, gee, you know, it's not hard to campaign uh, in this troubled economic time, people are not willing at this point to take it out on us, they should think again. I note also that in the Canada's largest province, this campaign did not revolve around uh, Justin Trudeau and all the bad things that he's uh, doing, which was basically part of the theme of the previous campaign in Ontario and subsequently of the uh, resistance, those so-called, that so-called movement of conservative premiers who put their names on the line to say, don't vote for Justin Trudeau, as opposed to François Legault in Quebec last fall, Mr. Ford uh, did not need to go try to see if he could just lose votes by doing it uh, and not be heard. And it looks to me like uh, the people who voted for Justin Trudeau, I mean, most Ontarians didn't vote. Uh, the turnout is dismally low. But, and that suggests that a number of people who voted for Justin Trudeau stayed home rather than vote for the Liberals or voted for Doug Ford. Uh, and both have, as polarizing figures, or, or with a potential for it, have managed to depolarize each other by hanging out. Uh, remember all those announcements, <clears throat> Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford, just prior to the election. I also suspect the federal Liberals, or at least the Prime Minister, is not totally uh, sad to see Doug Ford re-elected. Uh, they've managed to work together and it's always good for um, the party in power at Queen's Park and federally to not have to blame the same brand for whatever people get angry about over time. A final note, uh, again, uh, the gap between what people say about how concerned they are about climate change and how they vote for governments that don't offer much of a solution to climate change is 
pretty obvious. Uh, you can promise to pave the, the, the south, southern part of what's left of it, of Ontario, and win a big majority victory, even in 2022. All good lessons there. Bruce, do you want to add to that? Yeah, it's always, again, I'm always reminded how good it is to go after Chantal. She gets to raise a bunch of points that I didn't quite think of. Maybe I can elaborate on and add a little bit of color. But there were a couple of things that, despite um, all of those great observations that uh, that occurred to me as well. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that there was a big lesson in last night's outcome for the Trumpist-style conservatives in Canada. And the contrast with the life of Jason Kenney in politics as a conservative premier and the life of Doug Ford couldn't be more stark for people at the federal party level who are trying to figure out what do we make of uh, the interest level in a different type of conservative leader. For me, Doug Ford got himself into deep public opinion trouble the more he looked like Trump and sounded like a Trump-style politician, and he started to heal his problems and uh, develop a, I don't want to say popularity, because I don't think that's what it is, but I think an acquiescence uh, to the idea of a conservative administration in Ontario um, over time, the more he stepped away from that kind of posture. You'll remember he was uh, aggressive about Trudeau uh, early on in his mandate. He was anything but aggressive towards Trudeau. He was Trudeau's friend. He was his objective ally. Uh, there were a lot of people during the pandemic in the federal liberal system who were, you know, who would hear criticisms from Ford about where are the vaccines and that sort of thing. And, and uh, federal liberals would hate to hear that. And they, you know, counsel Trudeau to punch back, to escalate the fight, to really go to the mass with Ford. And Trudeau didn't do really any of that. He did it one or two times, but there was no sound that I could discern coming from the Trudeau liberals in Ottawa that suggested to Ontario voters that they shouldn't reelect Doug Ford, which had to be a kind of a bitter pill for Stephen Del Duca. I don't think it would have helped Stephen Del Duca particularly anyway, but I think it was a calculation on the part of the federal liberals that Doug Ford had turned into something closer to a Bill Davis style Ontario conservative than to a Jason Kenney or, or Trump style. Uh, effectively, I think what, what Ford did is he dismantled the anger that he and the heat that he had created around his own image as a politician, and he did it quite effectively. And you could you could see and hear the strategy in the uh, in the margins of what he was doing. Uh, a couple more quick points. One of the things that he did that people are are you know kind of fond of criticizing politicians for, but I can't help but think that it that it helped him, was that, um, uh, Peter, you and I, anyway, we got checks from the Ontario government that we didn't need. Uh, and they were reasonably sizable checks, hundreds of dollars, uh, because Ford decided that this was a time to tell us that we didn't need to pay to have our licenses renewed. And he, you know, as far as I can tell, he kind of used the money that the Trudeau government had given Ontario to manage COVID uh, to give that money back. Um, and I think that that created a sense that uh, this is a government that has had its ups and downs, that is uh, managing through a relatively stronger economy and um, and kind of understands that cost of living is a challenge for us. Um, so I don't want to be overly praising uh, for it. I don't think he ran a very good administration uh, for the last four years, but I do think that the political operation uh, that led to this result was really uh, powerful. And the, on the other side, the Liberals and the NDP both uh, are changing leaders. I think that's you know, pretty clearly uh, a thing that had to happen, especially in the case of the NDP. I, I didn't really understand why Andrea Horwath was uh, was running again, having having had several years to prove that she wasn't really capturing the attention of Ontarians. All right. Let me make a couple of points before I throw it back to Chantel. Um, first of all, agreeing with, with Chantel. I mean, there's historically we've seen how both the Liberals and the Conservatives actually kind of prefer to have that balance between Ottawa and Queen's Park, more so than in any other part of the country. They like it in Ontario uh, to have uh, their their opposite in power in the other in the other government. It works politically for them. Uh, the other point I'm going to make is in terms of a 
a lesson from last night, and this doesn't cut your grass on the political side, either one of you. It's more about the media, and it's specifically television. Election nights are a big deal for television. You know, that's their opportunity to, you know, show all their fancy graphics and and fancy sets and trot out their their best players on air in a live situation and handle the incoming results and analyze and this and that and the other thing. There was a big difference last night. Uh, It's shown in a a couple of places in the country. It's not universal yet by any stretch of the imagination, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any interest in Ottawa, but they used electronic counting last night. And that's why results came so fast, right, as opposed to by hand uh, uh, counting. Basically, what happened here was you you voted during the day and you 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 put your thing in the in in the slot and automatically it was tabulated. So at nine o'clock when the polls closed, it was basically one button pushed and bingo, you you see the numbers immediately. And that's why first results were out at nine o one. There was a declaration by one of the networks at nine minutes after nine um, as to who had won the election. And that was it. It was like game over. Where was the excitement? It like it was it vanished. In, you know, in literally in seconds. Now, I'm sure most people say, "Well, that's fine. That's the world we live in today, and we just want to know who won. We don't need to watch you guys spinning your wheels for half an hour, an hour, or two hours uh, with results." Now, it'll never take away from the close elections when those happen. But and on nights like last night, it is going to be. You know, what's the point? What's the point of fancy sets and big graphics and all that other stuff? Because it's over so fast. But that was, an for me, I found that an interesting part of the evening aside uh, from the politics. Now, Chantel, I know you wanted to jump in on something uh, Bruce had said. Yes, uh, on the point you were making, you'll remember, because we did those election nights federally together, how it changed the pace of the evening, the fact that we get now... In the old days, you got them by the hour, Atlantic Canada, and then you got Ontario and Quebec, and then you got the prairies and finally BC. And at some point, they, they changed the, hour, the voting hours so that we get now this big Ontario-Quebec batch with the prairies, um, which means that it all comes in and goes out really more quickly than it did in the past. I would argue at the national level that the the rationale was so that people in BC did not end up going to vote or going home where the government was already elected. The problem is that when that happens on the, in the national election, the results and the voice of the prairies gets lost in that big Ontario-Quebec batch. So there was, and and there still is a downside to the way that uh, it is done federally. It's it's like you fix a problem or you plug a hole in, in your boat and you, in the process, open a new one. So I don't know what Elections Canada wants to do about this, but um, it, it, it works more or less properly. The point I wanted to make politically had more to do with uh, the opposition parties, and in particular, the Liberals. For a long, long time, we, and I've just spent time, so I was reminded of it in the Western Canada over the past week. For a long, long time, we've become used to the notion that the Liberal Party as a force does not exist west of Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. And then there's the Liberal Party in BC, which we all know uh, whenever we mention if that there is uh, someone that will write to say you don't understand the Liberal Party of BC, it's not the same as a Liberal Party in Ontario. And that is quite true. If you're a conservative in BC, federally, you're probably voting provincially for the Liberals because that is who who they really are, not, not the Trudeau franchise of British Columbia. But now the Liberals are... <laughs> from what you can see, in trouble in both of the uh, central Canada provinces. The results in Ontario last night, I understand that a quarter of the vote went to the Liberals and they still ended up with a lot less seats than the NDP, but that is twice in a row that the Ontario Liberal Party, more often, except for the Ray years, uh, the alternative to the Conservatives in government in Ontario, do not manage to even win official party status, cannot even get their leader uh, re-elected. And at the same time, look at my province where an election is coming up. 
and where the Liberal Party, the one that Jean Charest used to lead, is in huge trouble, uh, like it has never been in its history. It is not a contender for power at this point. It is, I don't know, some 20 points behind, uh, closer to the other opposition parties in the popular vote and polls than anywhere close to the CAQ. And I'm thinking if the Liberal brand provincially is fading in Ontario, Quebec, so anything west of Atlantic Canada, that could be in time a problem for the federal liberals because they do count on sharing the base or sharing in Ontario. They're actually sharing resources. They are one and the same party. They, they will need to think long and hard about this. I, people will talk about, you know, how maybe the two parties should come together in Ontario. I think at this point, it's the Ontario Liberals that need to talk, think about this more so even than the Ontario NDP. And given that they're both going to be changing leaders, one can only hope that that comes into the mix because the, 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 this hating each other, which they spent a month showing the country, spending more time on attacking each other at times than attacking the incumbent that they plan to defeat is clearly counterproductive. And, and it could uh, restore what, what some in, the, in columns call an Ontario dynasty. That's how the Ontario Tories were in power for 40-some years unopposed, because the Liberal and the NDP would each take half of the opposition benches and then sit there, usually in front of a majority government, and have to wait another four years to do it again to themselves. Bruce? Yeah, a couple of more quick points. I remember, I think it was in 1980, uh, and it was Pierre Trudeau's campaign that I, I think I first heard then the, the term low bridging, the idea of you take your leader to as few places, expose them to as few people, um, as possible. If it's clear that your leader is a bit of a lightning rod and that things can go bad if they're exposed to too many people in too many conflict or conflict oriented situations. And I, I think we saw a campaign that probably did more of that strategy better uh, than any that I can recall with Doug Ford. There were not uh, many debates. There were very few situations where he put himself at risk of being asked too many awkward questions by journalists. I think that journalists uh, generally, or a number of them anyway, did a pretty good job of trying to remind people or let people know that that was happening, which I think is is important. But at the end of the day, it did it did kind of reinforce for those campaign managers who are inclined to see their situation the same way and use that strategy that um, it can work. I mean, it really did reduce the number of people who who felt like they were angered by Ford and needed to go out and mark a ballot. And I think just to, the last point is just to pick up on what Chantal was saying. If we, I was talking to somebody, it's a friend of mine from Alberta the other day, and we were remarking on the fact that um, there are very progressive mayors in Calgary and in Edmonton. Um, I'm looking at the Ottawa election coming up this fall. It's probably going to elect a very progressive mayor as well. And it, it tells us that that progressive vote in uh, our biggest urban centers wants progressive politicians. And they don't really necessarily want middle-of-the-road progressive politicians. And, and some will say that the genius of Trudeau has been that he has co-opted a lot of the territory that the federal NDP uh, would otherwise occupy. And some will say that the problem uh, that they see with Trudeau is that he's too far left. And, and we'll probably come to that in our next item. But I do think there's something in what Chantel is saying, which is that a progressive voter in an urban place wants to hear real hard progressive ideas, not necessarily the softer version of them. And uh, that's a big question for the Liberal Party uh, in the longer term. Uh, just a final point to build on what uh, Bruce has said about municipal politics. Quebec has had its round of municipal elections last fall and the new generation of voter, uh, of mayors uh, are the counterbalance to the Coalition Avenir Québec government and the National Assembly. They are the way that, uh, that Bruce describes them, and they are becoming quite a strong counterpower on the progressive side, doing a better job, I'd say, uh, than the Quebec Liberal Party that is 
the, the party that is supposed to be the middle of the road, progressive, uh, responsible alternative and is going nowhere with uh, ideas that I think most people would be at a loss to uh, list. Okay, Bruce hinted at it a moment ago in terms of what our next uh, next segment's going to be about. It's going to be about Justin Trudeau taking some incoming fire, not necessarily from inside the tent, but from just outside the tent. What impact's that going to have? We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge. This is Good Talk. It's Friday. Chantel's in Montreal. Bruce is in Ottawa. Uh, You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, If you can dial back, either in your own mind or through your history books, to the mid-1970s, the Liberals had this powerhouse majority government after the 74 election, the Pierre Trudeau is Prime Minister, John Turner is Finance Minister, until Turner quit and disappeared on a Bay Street. He didn't say much on the way out, just that he wanted to, you know, spend time with his family and that, the kind of things you often hear when you really know there's more to the story than that. But nevertheless, he left active politics. And while he was pushed by a lot of his friends to say, you know, you've got to come out and attack Trudeau, pave your way for the leadership in the future. You don't agree with some of his economic policies, and you should make that clear. But for the most part, John Turner remained quiet until 1984, when he decided to run for the Liberal leadership. He won, he became Prime Minister for a couple of months, and that was that. Well, I was thinking of that today because we've watched this week Bill Morneau, the former finance minister for Justin Trudeau, who didn't really decide to leave on his own, kind of edged out of the uh, Trudeau cabinet and then got right out of politics. But he made a speech this week where he was going after the Trudeau government. And while he wasn't naming names, he was clearly targeting Christian Freeland as well, his successor in the finance portfolio, and saying that the government was too concerned about progressive politics and wasn't concerned enough about productivity and having a a relationship with the business sector in the country. So he's not holding fire. He's, uh, He's leveling his guns, so to speak, at his former colleagues and his former boss. Does this have an impact? That's the question. Uh, Bruce, why don't you start us this time? Well, I think it's definitely going to have an impact on the relationship between Bill Morneau and the people that he served in caucus and cabinet with, including the prime minister. And I think that's already clear in the way that the prime minister felt like he wanted to respond to Mr. Morneau's comments. I don't think it'll have a a bigger impact than that. Um, It depends, I suppose, on whether or not this is the first of a, of a campaign that, um, Mr. Morneau is intending to run, and maybe what he's doing is uh, setting himself up for a run at the leadership if it becomes uh, available at some point, although I don't really think so. I think he's, uh, it felt more like he wanted to reestablish his relationship or uh, the nature of um, how he's viewed in the business community uh, in Canada by making clear that some of the things that he was involved in as finance minister, he didn't particularly enjoy being involved in. Pardon me. Um, On the question of what he talked about, I mean, he said certainly to what the, what the CD Howe uh, group would have loved to hear. He said a thing that a lot of people have said, which is that Canada's productivity uh, is lagging and um, government should do more about that. Um, I've heard so many politicians say that with so much enthusiasm over so many years, only to watch that the public opinion kind of goes, well, we don't really know what that even means, let alone what we should do about it. And um, 
So I don't know that it'll have an opinion, an impact on public opinion. I think for him to say productivity is a problem and imply that Trudeau's the solution is a bit disingenuous. I I think he was there long enough and and had an opportunity to, um, especially with that uh, that first majority, to establish some change. uh, And and so he has to kind of own up to his share of of the responsibility if, if some indeed does accrue to the Trudeau government on this. Um, two two final points. I mean, when he talks about how the Trudeau government was more interested in redistributing wealth, there will be those in the Trudeau government who say, thank you for making that point. Uh, we don't see it as a criticism. We see it as something that is a logical, uh, important, and politically quite popular um, theme in the times in which we live when income inequality is considered to be a really important issue for a lot of people. So it wasn't a cutting criticism when he may have intended it to say that, you know, they were more interested in redistributing wealth than growing prosperity, but some on the liberal side will see it as, uh, as a reinforcement of the brand that they're trying to put forward. And on the last point, uh, or on one of the other points that he was making that doesn't consult with business, uh, I think there is room for the for the federal government to do a better job of uh, of working with the business community, and um, I think that it's not across the board. I think there are some ministers in the cabinet who do uh, a really good job of, uh, of being attentive to those conversations and the ideas that that exist in the business community, and there are others that aren't uh, as oriented that way. But I think that's that's a criticism that we heard from uh, business leaders in the last several months. Um, and uh, is one that probably uh, should be looked at by the government. Chantal. Okay, where to start? Uh, no, uh, it's not. It's something more familiar than the run for the leadership that this is a prelude to, and it's a prelude to what will eventually, I suspect, become a book tour, since Mr. Morneau is publishing a book uh, about uh, the battle to Canadian prosperity in January. Uh, So, uh, this is laying down the groundwork. A generous interpretation would be that if he wants his book to be uh, analyzed on content, uh, he is getting rid of the politics that would inevitably uh, surround the publishing of that book. You ask, will it have any impact? It would have more impact, or it could have more impact if if Mr. Morneau was painting in the picture an alternative responsible leader in the shape of the next conservative leader to uh, to to implement some of his prescriptions. At this point, uh, he seems uh, to have at least as much to say about Pierre Poilievre without na- naming him uh, as he does about the policies of the Trudeau government. Uh, this was not an endorsement of a change of government under a Poilievre-led Conservative Party, quite the opposite of it. And it does reflect, I think, some angst in the business community, not just towards the Liberals, but also towards uh, the Conservative Party and the eventual outcome uh, uh, of that leadership campaign. Now, it would have had more impact if uh, Mr. Morneau had left the government on a matter of economic policy principle. But that is not the history of his leaving the government. The history of his leaving the government is that he had uh, a a tin ear for politics uh, and and for the optics of politics. And in the end, after a a series of of examples of that, he ended up being in the untenable position of being the number two in the government and being totally wounded. I have rarely seen a Minister of Finance resign in the middle of a crisis. Remember, we were in the midst of the pandemic and so soon become forgotten in the heat of the action. And overall, I look, you know, Bill Morneau and Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, they all have different quarrels with the government that they left but it always brings me back to the same thing and that is particularly true in the case of Mr. Morneau. Justin Trudeau made history. He brought his party from third place to first place. As a result, he brought in a bunch of people who had uh, based on their record. He did not know them. They did not know him and they didn't know politics. Bill Morneau was the first finance minister in decades 
to come to that job on the first day that he stepped in the House of Commons. If he'd served in a caucus, in opposition or in government previously, he would have learned the, 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 the hard way, but he would have learned in a less public way the realities of politics. He would have understood how the center can try to dictate to a finance minister what to do and what not to do and when it is time to push back. And he would have learned the cut and trust of the House of Commons. Instead, he got to do all that, uh, which is a steep learning curve as Minister of Finance. And I think that experience was not particularly uh, conducive to repeating uh, the, 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 the experience of uh, plucking someone out of a corporate boardroom and making him a Minister of Finance uh, overnight. Uh, a quick last point on this one. Um, Justin Trudeau knows how to take a hit. He's taken lots of them uh, over time uh, as prime minister, and he seems to be able to bounce back. Um, what about Christia Freeland? Because this, this is a hit on her, too. Is this damaging for her in terms of the relationship she has to have with, uh, you know, with the business community as well as with Canadians in general? Well, you know, as I see it, I mean, she, uh, from what I can tell, she's been doing a pretty um, serious job of trying to have more outreach with the business community. I kind of hear tell of that quite a bit. And so I'd be reluctant to characterize her as having little to no relationship or negative relationship with the business community, because I think it's always a moving target. I think part of the context for um everything is the pandemic and what strains it's put on people's ability to do all of the things that are on their agenda to do. Um, I think for um, Ms. Freeland, the argument about productivity isn't going to cause her uh, too much of a loss of sleep in terms of her political fortunes or the, the assessment that maybe she's not doing enough in part because that argument not only has trouble gaining traction because it's complicated and the average person doesn't know what it is exactly that is expected of them. If we're going to try to improve our productivity, it's more a discussion that happens among business people and economists. And, and um, so it, it doesn't really land with much traction, but it especially doesn't land with much effect when the economy feels like it's going well, when there are more jobs and there are people to fill them. Um, it's not great to see inflation and the cost of living going up, but people don't associate that with the productivity problem. They associate that with a cost of living challenge that they're facing and the sense that they have that uh, there are lots of people buying lots of things and earning money in the marketplace. And that's not um, the kind of thing where you go, well, gee, I guess what we really got to do is, is deal with this productivity problem. So uh, I think it it will. I, I think Chantal is absolutely right that it must be more to do with the themes that he's going to be using in his book tour and the and the thesis that he wants to put out there, and probably the idea that he wants to be understood not as somebody who had a tenure in politics, but as somebody who had a clear eyed view of what what should be done to strengthen the Canadian economy for the long term. I'm not sure he's going to be successful at that, um, and. Uh, and I guess we'll see where it goes from here. Quick point from you, Chantal. About the damage to Christian Freeland, the quick point is that would have been a lot more damaging back in the days when corporate Canada bankrolled the Conservatives and the Liberals, because then there would have been people inside both parties, in her case, the Liberals, to say, this is a disaster for our, our party finances. But in this day and age, and I know that corporate Canada is not yet adjusted to that reality, he who calls the piper, who pays the piper, calls the tune, and they don't. Uh, and that goes a long way to explain the populism streak of the Conservative Party, as it is, whether you think it's good or bad, but also Justin Trudeau's approach to economic policy versus, for instance, Jean Chrétien or Paul Martin. Yeah, there is absolutely no doubt that Pierre Polyev would not be talking about cryptocurrency uh, the way he is if the old financing system was still in place. Well, funny you mentioned Pierre Polyev. There you go. I'm Mr. Segway this morning. Mr. Right? Segway. <laughs> I hope you both have your productivity still going here for <laughs> the next segment. We'll take a break. Be right back.
Welcome back. Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. Chantal Hebert is in Montreal. Final segment of Good Talk for this week, and it's a uh, major segment. Uh, we're reaching a, uh, a key date in the conservative leadership race. The actual race isn't decided till September, but they got to stop selling memberships. They have to have accumulated all their memberships in the next few days because the cutoff is coming which made yesterday's tweet from Pierre Polyev, the sort of acknowledged front-runner in the race, although nobody really knows for sure, right? Because nobody has a count, actual count of everybody's membership status, although I'm sure some of the, par- some of the candidates think they know where things stand. Um, but it, as the acknowledged front-runner, you probably in the last few days try to stay out of fire. But he dropped a tweet yesterday, which surprised a lot of people. Basically, uh, the kind of guts of the tweet are that he's introduced a private member's bill that would ban all mandated vaccines. All of them. Everything. Not just COVID. All of them. Every kind of vaccine that's out there, you can't mandate them anymore if his private member's bill is accepted. And people, have, a lot of people have been going, what? <laughs> Did he really say that? Was that actually he who put that tweet out? Or him? And it's left, as I say, people wondering, and it's taken a lot of incoming. Seems to be one of the key words today. Who wants to start off this uh, in terms of where we are on this race and what that tweet does to it? Let's let's start on the tweet. Chantal. <laughs> so um, whether it pays off or not, I, I can't answer. But it does seem that uh, Mr. Poilier was trying both to uh, to to mislead his own supporters, those who are of the anti-vax persuasion, uh, and uh, throw a bill that is, frankly, uh, of very little use uh, and that will not come up for debate anytime soon or maybe in our lifetimes uh, because private member bills don't come up just because you present them. Uh, And I'm saying that because you are right, this tweet basically said uh, this bill will ban vaccine mandates. But what it really says is that it applies to COVID vaccine mandates in the civil service. So the tweet misrepresented. It's rare, you know, in this campaign, we've seen a lot of Poiliev camp tweets that uh, misrepresent what their opponents are saying. But in this case, he's misrepresenting himself. And I would say deliberately and rather cynically to draw a line to uh, people that he is trying to get to sign up uh, as members to vote for him, but on false pretense. Even if he wanted to ban all vaccine mandates, he can't. It doesn't matter. You can't preventively uh, or preemptively say future federal governments shall ban all vaccine mandates. And besides, If the Quebec government, the Ontario government, or anyone else who is in government in this country wants to have vaccine mandates, uh, an employer, the the Montreal, the city of Montreal, there is nothing he can do about it. So it basically looked like a throw to the anti-vax movement, uh, but a, a, a throw that is based on a falsehood about what the bill actually says. It's interesting that you would want to support someone who is ready to mislead you on his intentions, uh, and who is banking on your ignorance. You know, I, I've said it before, um, not to a receptive audience, but <laughs> it's almost like either Polyev or somebody close to him sat down two nights ago and said, what would Trump do here right now? <laughs> what would he do to, you know, to deflect everything else, bring the attention back to me, and we do something in such a way that'll, you know, make the base solid, or what we think is our base, and, but, but really it doesn't mean anything, and I'm not held to anything. I don't know, maybe that's far too cynical. 
Oh, it's you pushing that Trumpian argument every chance you get. Well, I think it's... Don't you have a book that you want to peddle? (laughs) (laughs) No, but he does, Trump. And I mean, he does have a playbook. And you see it being used in different places all over this continent and beyond. But we just spent 15 minutes talking about how Ford won because he didn't use that playbook while Jason Kenney is contemplating retirement and trying to say he was a victim to the anti-vax movement, I just came back from Calgary. That's not what people are really saying. It is only uh, suddenly Jason Kenney has discovered that it's not freedom uh, that was uh, his problem. It's the anti-vax movement, and he's a martyr to the cause. Yes. Uh, but he was the person who played the most to those feelings and to that crowd. And that tells me that there is a significant, significant section of the Conservative Party and an even larger one in the electorate that looks at those strategies and does not feel like uh, the people who voted for Donald Trump feel the opposite because they do not really want um, to have a a Canadian version of Donald Trump. It's not one of those things we envy from the U.S. So if that's their thinking... Have at it, but it's at cost to the re-election chances and the recruitment uh, possibilities of the Conservative Party. I don't. Dis- I, like I don't disagree with you. Just you, you uh, shush for a minute. I don't disagree with Chantel <laughs> at all on this point. Um, but, but we remember, as she remembers, that the Doug Ford actually started by playing the Trump playbook and quite enjoying people saying, "Oh, he's a mini Trump." That was ages ago. And I spent too it. much time defending Doug Ford when it was fashionable to say that about him to let this pass. I t- spoke to audiences and asked them to show me where Doug Ford was not someone who courted diversity in his support in the same way as Justin Trudeau does. Uh, Doug Ford, Donald Trump was not just someone who would say any stupid thing that came to his head and believe people enough of them would be stupid enough to follow him. He was also someone who was campaigning on an anti-immigration, uh, the others are bad for us platform. There is nothing and anything that Doug Ford did from the moment he became leader to today that goes anywhere near that kind of rhetoric. And he wouldn't be premier this morning if he had. I... <laughs> I didn't say I didn't say that I didn't say that he mimicked everything Trump said. Yeah, but I they all say he, stupid he, things. Yeah, Even Justin do. Trudeau does. Every but but he enjoyed in his initial time in office being constantly compared by the Canadian media, by the American media. They did whole takeouts on this. Here's the mini Trump. Here's the Canadian Trump. Blah blah blah. Anyway, he whether he accepted or didn't accept it, he he uh, managed to ditch that image over these last couple of years very effectively. And on you know on the diversity stuff, absolutely, you're right. And he spent a lot of time talking about it last night in his his acceptance speech. But he and his family have kind of have, have played. Um, the, um, Card's not the right word, but they've they've used that for their success uh, over time in both municipal politics and now in provincial politics, uh, and are, are always um, uh, surrounded in key positions uh, with a sense of what the country actually looks like these days. All right, Just Bruce. one final point before Bruce gets in. Because he's Bruce is going to come in and totally 100% support if, you. If I were to call Pierre Poilievre or compare him to anyone, I would call him a mini Maxime Bernier and not a mini Trump. <laughs> He'd probably prefer Trump. <laughs> I'm sure. Go ahead, Bruce. Well, you know, I, I, I love this about, and I, I expect it to continue in the future, and, uh, and I'll enjoy it always. I I remember a couple of weeks ago, I we had a conversation about Polyev, and I tweeted something afterwards, kind of promoting our podcast. And I said, you know, in which I say the Conservative Party had its best week in a long time. And Chantal, of course, then covered my tweet, reaching out to her giant Chantal army on social media, and said, which I don't completely agree with. Fair enough, but I like this better. The the theory for me is that nothing is more important for the Conservative Party than to have oxygen and daylight 
into this fight that they're having right now. They need to decide whether they really want this guy, Pierre Polyev, to be their leader. And if they do, God bless them. I think they'll regret it forever. Um, and if they don't, now's the time that they need to really study this. And the risk in politics so often these days that is that is that people tune out. They don't pay attention. They don't see the risk coming or they see it coming and they go, oh, somebody else is going to solve this and prevent this bad thing from happening. And then the next thing you know, they wake up and, uh, and, and there's Brexit or there's Trump. Um, and in that sense, I do think Polyev follows that line. I also want to completely endorse Chantal's point about uh, Minimax Bernier. 89% of People's Party voters do not believe government accounts of, uh, of events. They don't believe the media. They don't. Uh, and so when Polyev says things that sound like nobody in regular society would ever say anything like this, they go, aha, he's talking my language. He understands the world the way I understand, which is that you can't trust uh, the gatekeepers. You can't trust the elites. You, you have to believe in things that are so outlandish that um, it, it's a kind of a sign of the, this is the group that I should huddle with because I kind of, I, I revel in these outlandish theories. Now, so it's outlandish as a policy idea to say there should never be any vaccine mandates in the future. It's it's absolutely nuts from a public policy standpoint. So for Pierre Polyev to stand behind that idea, and he didn't just tweet it out. He you know he had a bill developed, and Chantel's right to say it's not all in the bill what he put in the tweet, but he had signaled that he was going to do this a little while ago, um, and so he was following through on the last day that people could see a tweet from him about this or watch a YouTube video about this and hit a button and buy a membership to support him. And he was definitely pitching that crowd uh, that otherwise is a Max Bernier People's Party crowd. And and I don't think there was any doubt about that. However, for him to do that is equipping his opponents with some of the best ammunition I've ever seen uh, to go after him between now and September uh, when these votes happen. And I think Jean Charest has started to up his game quite significantly. He doesn't spend any time on anything other than criticizing Pierre Polyev and talking about some of his policy ideas, which sound to many people, I think, like more rational uh, public policy, mainstream conservative ideas with a touch of innovation and uh, and that sort of thing and creativity. So I think it's shaping up to be the fight that the conservatives need to have. And frankly, I think that Polyev gave Charest a huge gift yesterday. I think he gave the liberals a huge gift if he ends up being um, the leader of that party. I can't imagine that all of those caucus members in the conservative caucus who've pledged their support to Pierre Polyev, enjoyed watching that play out yesterday because they have to go back into their communities and have people say, why would you support somebody who would say that they're going to ban vaccine mandates forever? First of all, if you could do it, it's a stupid idea. Secondly, you can't do it. It's like saying, I'm going to ban pizza with pineapple. You you can't do it. It doesn't matter what you think today that people shouldn't do in the future, they're going to decide whether they want that friggin' pineapple on the pizza at some point, and they're going to choose their own course down the road. So it's outrageous what he did. Um, And it's taking people for fools. Finally, the question is, is he deliberately taking people for fools? And I think the answer has to be yes. Finally, an issue that I can understand. I'm glad we brought the debate around it. Pizza with pineapple, because I love that. I, it's really good. <laughs> Why but, am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> I've only got a couple of minutes left. I want. <laughs> do you have an assessment of where things are on this kind of membership count? Uh, but first of all, in terms of if you buy a membership in support of Pierre Polyev, does that mean you have to, on the first ballot, uh, vote for Pierre Polyev? 
You buy a membership, you buy a membership. You don't buy it on behalf of anyone and no one can pay for it except you with a credit card that's got your own name on it. You are free to do with it whatever you want. So the race is still very much on then, even after mm -hmm. they stop. The race is still very much on. You will hear numbers like half a million members, 500,000. That would be a record, uh, almost double the last uh, membership uh, uh, role a couple of years ago, and certainly that would make it the biggest pool of member vo or voters within a party ever. That's not, that says nothing about the liberals, since they have not had a li liberal leadership campaign for quite a while, uh, and those numbers uh, could be matched if they had one. But there are things you, people need to keep in mind about those numbers. You can have 100,000 members in Alberta and 8,000 members in Quebec. And if you were to choose and someone told you, which do you want, the, the 100,000 in Alberta or Saskatchewan or the 8,000 in Quebec, you would pick the 8,000 in Quebec. Because as long as there are 100 members in every one of Quebec's 78 ridings, so that works out to about 8,000, you get full points or points for every one of those writings. If you have 100,000 or 150,000 members in Saskatchewan, you still only get 100 points per writing and there are 14 writings. So it's really hard looking at those numbers to know whether they translate into a an easy win, a first strong first ballot showing for Poiliev that will be irreversible or not, because it's not just the magnitude of the bomb in this case, it's the location of it that matters. Uh, and we don't know that. So the, the, before being amazed by numbers and any campaign that says oh, we sold 200,000 of those, keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that the last time a couple of years ago, out of 270-something thousand members, 100,000 did not vote. Okay. Um, you got 20 seconds if you want it, Bruce, but only 20 seconds. I just want to say I agreed with so much of what both of you said today that I'm really <laughs> looking forward to the weekend now because I'm better informed. <laughs> you are yeah, a piece right. of work. <laughs> Middle of the road will get you crushed on Enjoy. any highway. Enjoy your pizza. So far, so good. Enjoy your pizza. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're going to wrap it up for this day. That's that's good talk, such that it was for some of us. <laughs> Thanks, Chantel. Thanks, Bruce. Good always to talk to you, too, and we'll see you again uh, a week from now. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been Good Talk on the Bridge. Talk to you again on Monday. Mm -hmm.